Again, we bow before you knowing that we need you in every way, especially when we open your word together and we study it. The things of this life are so distracting to us that even that alone is enough to cause us to be confused by the things that we sometimes read. And so, Lord, help us set those things aside, but illumine our minds by the power of your Spirit so that we would understand all that you have for us as we think through and contemplate communion. The joy that we can have in Christ through it all. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be here this morning. I'll ask you to open your Bibles together with me to not the book of Romans, but because this is Communion Sunday, I want to take a little bit of a break from Romans and have you open to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We have studied the Gospel of the Mark in the past. But I want to return there for a moment this morning because there are some very important truths expressed in the words of Jesus Christ that I trust will give us great comfort, hope, and assurance as believers through communion. And even so, possibly challenging those who may be in our midst who do not yet believe upon Jesus Christ as their Savior. So we are returning to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to focus our attention this morning on verses 22 through 26. Verses 22 through 26. It says this for us, and while they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing it, after, after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. I read it this morning in Psalm 147. But just to remind us, verse 5 says this, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Great is our Lord, abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. We find similar words to that in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 4, we are told this, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Certainly both of those passages expose to us in really no uncertain terms that God's understanding of all things is without limit. God's understanding of all things is without limit. Now, when you just think about that phrase for a moment, and helps to illumine our minds of the knowledge of God that is perfect, that there isn't a part of creation anywhere in the universe that is out of His sight. 
Not one thing. That is a frightening thought. And yet it's a comforting thought. It's frightening because God sees and knows everything. In fact, Psalm 147 says, He knows all the stars. In fact, He names them all. Scientists don't even know how many stars there are. They say billions upon billions upon billions. God knows them all and named them all. I think it's funny when scientists try to name stars. They already have a name. All they have to do is go to the Bible. God has named them all. He hasn't told us their names, but God knows their names. We don't have to name them. God knows everything. He knows everything right now. He knows everything before you came here today. He knows everything that happened last night. Knows everything that happened yesterday. Knows everything that happened a week ago. Knows everything that's happened in your whole life. God sees and has seen it all. Now that ought to cause us to shake. That ought to cause us to shudder. We've hidden a lot of things from other people. We've hidden a lot of things from the knowledge of Anybody, but God knows it all. That is frightening. Especially if you're not a true Christian. But it's also comforting. Because God sees and knows everything. God sees and knows everything. Nothing is a surprise to God. All of the bad that happens in the world, all of the bad that happens in our own personal lives, He sees and knows it all. And he is sovereign over it. So that when we think we're getting away with something, we're not getting away with anything before God. And all of that may happen to us in this life. God knows that it's happening. God has allowed it to happen. And understanding that brings comfort to our soul. This is known as the divine attribute of omniscience. That's what theologians call it, omniscience. The knowing of all things. Not that God learns. That was a heresy that was brought up several years ago. The idea that God learns, that God isn't all-knowing in that sense, but God allowed himself to learn from things. That's not true. God is all-knowing. God knows everything. And while that may stagger our infinite minds and how we think on a human plane, especially when we think of the billions and trillions of contingencies that you have to consider to know everything, it's no trouble to God. Nothing is a surprise to Him. And that is exactly what is on display throughout the final scenes of the Gospel of Mark. The omniscience of Christ. The omniscience of God. Jesus is now in his final week of his earthly ministry. We know that. He's spending his final hours with those who are closest to him. The disciples whom he has chosen. And while all the events that are taking place are shocking to the disciples. They're wondering about what's going on. They're they're confused about it all. None of it is shocking to Christ. This has been the plan all along. 
Nothing is taking place outside of the purposes and outside of the plan of God. He knows everything. Why? Because he planned everything. And it's all taking place just as it has been decided and now being revealed in time. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Well, the hour for Jesus' saving sacrifice is now here in Mark 14, close at hand. Jesus has already revealed his omniscience over the plans of the final Passover. Remember what he said to his disciples? We're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to go there. I want you to go. Speak to the, You'll see a donkey with a foal. Go get that thing. If they ask you, say the teacher needs it. He enters into Jerusalem on the back of the foal. People are laying down the branches and their coats and, and praising God and praising him as the king of the Jews. Christ is omniscient over all of that. He's omniscient over the final Passover. The time with his disciples in the upper room. Go and prepare this place. He knows all of that. He's shown his omniscience over the events of the surrounding Judas and the betrayal. In fact, in the verses just prior to this, verses 17 through 21, Jesus clearly knows what is going on as Jesus is right there, or Judas is right there eating the bread with Jesus. And so in our passage this morning, we get another glimpse at the omniscience of God over the new covenant. The new covenant being seen through this first communion. Remember, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. That's why he came. That's the ultimate goal. So that he might die. Without the death of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Unless Jesus dies, there is no salvation. And here, on the night before he dies, here in Mark chapter 14, he reveals to us a remarkable promise about or for those who know him as their Lord and Savior. It's really a remarkable promise. In the words of Jesus Christ, there is comfort here. In the words of Jesus Christ, there is hope here. In the words of Jesus Christ, there is assurance. This is one of the applicational truths for us today. That the omniscience of God, the omniscience of Jesus Christ, brings us comfort, hope, and assurance. It's frightening, yet it is so comforting and so hopeful and so assuring. And so Jesus is revealing his omniscience over the new covenant. And we see it through the communion here in verse 22 through 26. So here is Jesus Christ with his disciples experiencing the final Passover. I say it that way specifically. This is the final Passover. The final Passover being an essential act of the Lord Jesus Christ with his disciples as he moves toward the ultimate goal of dying on the cross. This is the final Passover. And remember, God has planned for every contingency. God knows it all. God has planned for it all. He planned for the details of the meal that they were to partake of. He planned for the betrayer to be there at the meal. He even planned in eternity past for the contingency, get this, of two Passover meals. People in the north... 
the tradition was to celebrate Passover on Thursday. Jesus is with his disciples having the Passover meal on Thursday. Jesus was going to die before the Sabbath, Friday. God has planned it all that there would be even a those in the south typically celebrated on Friday. So Jesus is in complete control of everything. He's behind behind his death is God the Father accomplishing it all. And so Jesus could have the Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday and could still be the Passover lamb on Friday. God has taken care of everything. No contingency is unplanned. And now he's having this final Passover with his disciples in which he establishes the institution of the communion, that which we are going to partake of this morning. And so we cannot pass by this lightly. This is a very important moment in redemptive history. This has been prophesied about in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant reality happening, being established and instituted. This must happen, and we are watching it unfold right here before us. Now we need to remember that Passover was the second oldest, the second oldest of the Jewish religious activities. There was only one older, and that was the Sabbath day the Sabbath. So for well over a thousand years, the Jews have been celebrating Passover up to this moment in Mark chapter 14. And it had been commanded by God so that it was held every year and every Jew would once a year celebrate the Passover. So this is a very sacred institution that is happening right here with Jesus and his disciples. But now Jesus is the final God sanctioned Passover. Jesus is the final God given lamb. And we need to understand that. We need to understand the significance of what is happening here. So if you think about it, every Passover that takes place from this time on is a Passover that has not been commanded by God. Any Passover that happened whereby Jesus isn't the central focus of that Passover, is not a Passover commanded by God because Jesus is the final Passover. Jesus, who is God, changes the significance of the meaning right here. The old is passing away. The new has come. Christ is ending the long years of Passover and beginning a new memorial feast, which he begins to institute here in verse 22. And so Jesus ends the old and begins this new feast. And I want us to notice three truths from his words here in verses 22 through 26. Three truths. I want us to notice what is signified. I want us to notice what is promised. And I want to know what that all means, what is signified, what is promised, and what all that means. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So first of all, what is signified here? Verse 22 says, notice, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a, after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Take it, this is my body. Now, Judas has already gone out. 
Judas is out of the room and they just begin to eat the full meal of the Passover lamb. Okay, that's the beginning of of what a Passover was about. It was the custom of the head of the feast, usually the father in the home or the leader of some group. Here clearly Jesus is that leader. It's custom of them to pick up the bread, to break it, and to eat it along with the lamb that is provided there. And that begins the feast, the Passover feast. It may have been at that time in the meal that this is happening right at the beginning. We're not really sure, but either way, Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks. That's what the word originally means in the original language. Uh, Eulageo is for the word blessing there. And after a blessing, he gave thanks. The word means to give thanks or to be thankful. It's where we get our word eulogize. We do eulogies at funerals. What do we do? What's a eulogy? A eulogy is saying good things about the person that's no longer around. That's really what it is. We're saying good things about someone else. In other words, Jesus thanked God the Father, which is to say good things about God. Jesus thanks God the Father for the provision that God has given. That's what he did. A blessing. He thanked God for it. That's exactly what we're what we are doing with we're to do with all things, right? We're to be thankful always, it says. In all things give thanks. We are to receive them with thanksgiving. We are to receive them by saying good things about God for what God has done. That's what thanksgiving is. So Jesus thanks his Father for the provision that they are about to partake of. But notice that this is not just a provision by God for sustaining them physically. Notice in this text that it is a powerful symbol of what it signifies. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, take it, this is my body. Take it, this is my body. Now in that statement, there are some very important theological truths. It teaches us, number one, that each of us needs a substitute. Each of us needs a substitute. We need a substitute body because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. If we have to pay that wage, there's no way we can pay it. Therefore, we need someone else to pay it. We need a substitute. The Bible tells us that none of us is righteous. Not even one. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We need someone to save us. God is perfectly righteous. We are completely unrighteous. And the payment for our unrighteousness is eternal judgment by God. Unless, unless someone, unless a perfect someone takes our place. Jesus is saying here, I am that someone. I am that substitute. And so when he says, take this, is, this is my body, he in essence is saying, take me in your place. Take me in your place. This is my body. Take it. 
Just like the lamb was to be sacrificed on behalf of the family or on behalf uh, uh, in the old Passover, they would sacrifice the lamb. He was the, the one who would take the penalty, uh, the essential covering of the sin that had been done. Jesus Christ is here presenting himself as our substitute so that we who believe upon him might not face the holy wrath against our unrighteousness. That's the first truth. Jesus, this word is telling us that we need a substitute. But there's a second truth in these words, and that is this. Jesus is saying that each one needs him as their substitute. It isn't that we just need a substitute, but we need him as the substitute. Notice he says, take it, this is my body. This is my body. Body. In other words, no other substitute will do. You notice Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, uh, take this because this bread represents a body. He doesn't say that. He's not indicating in, the, in some way that any sacrifice, anything you can come up with, any other body, anyone will do. He isn't saying that, no. It isn't some generic sacrifice before God that will work. Every sinner needs a substitutionary sacrifice, and that sacrifice must be Jesus Christ alone. There is no other sacrifice. Take, this is my body. We need Him and we only need Him. So when Jesus offers them the bread, when He takes that, that loaf of bread which signified uh, bread from heaven, which sacrificed really the, the idea of their suffering, the quickness at which God had delivered them, all of those kind of things, Jesus takes it and He, he creates a new significance with it all. Symbolizing his offering, the offering of himself as their own personal substitute. That you not only need God, what you need is me who is God. So each time you and I come around the communion table and we pass out the bread, we thank God for it. We go through, sometimes we get so much into the ritualistic aspects of it and the routine of it all and we pass it out we don't really think much about it what we are doing is thanking God for the provision of a personal substitute for our life thank you God for providing a personal satisfactory substitute for me you see so here is Jesus Christ changing everything these guys in their minds would have been thinking through what they had grown up with their whole life. And now Jesus is adding significance that they never knew. No longer was this going to be a meal for offering an animal that could only prolong the inevitable. What was that? The day of judgment. Animals didn't atone for any sin for any length of time. It was only for a moment. The inevitable day of judgment was going to come. No longer was this going to be a meal that, that showed that. No longer was this going to be a, a meal to be a reminder of God's deliverance from some temporal oppressor. The idea of temporal 
uh, the oppression of sin in a temporal sense being taken away. It would no longer be that. This would no longer be a reminder uh, of the one who would give himself. He's the ultimate sacrifice now. It's not some temporal thing. Now we have a reminder of the ultimate sacrifice given for sin. So that all who would ever believe on him might have eternal life. You see, that would now be a remembrance. This is now a remembrance of God's deliverance, permanent deliverance from the oppressor and penalty of sin. And so the significance of the words of Jesus Christ are strikingly profound just right here. Now that ought to bring us comfort, shouldn't it? Remember I said in communion is comfort? That ought to bring us comfort. Right here we are comforted by the fact that we have an absolute sufficient substitute in Jesus Christ. But there's a second truth here. And that's what is promised. What is promised. Specifically clarification of what is promised here in verses 23 In 24, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Having broken the bread, and they all might partake of the bread. Now he takes a cup and he gives thanks again, the same idea here when he was giving thanks blessing God thanking the father for all that he has accomplished and so he gives thanks for the bread he gives thanks for the cup and he gives it to them and he says all of you drink it and they did and then he clarifies what has just happened he clarifies this promise right This is the blood of the covenant. Covenant is a promise. Just poured out for many. Truly I say to you. I'll never drink it again. This fruit until that day. Jesus says this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. It's the new covenant written in his blood. Sometime in your own study. If you'd like to you can go back to Exodus chapter 24. Verse 8, and you find the words of Jesus Christ basically the same there as he's quoting right here. And what Jesus is saying is that God, when he made a covenant with man, God required that blood be shed as a clarifying symbol of the covenant. When there was covenants made, blood was shed. In some kind of way that symbolized it. When God made a covenant with Abraham, what did he do? He laid Abraham down. Abraham slept. The animals were split by God. God walks through the animals himself. Signifying and ratifying the covenant with Abraham. That on him and him alone would that promise be fulfilled. So there was bloodshed by animals. God had made his covenant with Moses. There was bloodshed. God made the covenant with Noah. There was a sacrifice placed on the altar. Each one of the covenants, God required blood to be shed for the making of those covenants with men. So when God brought reconciliation through himself, the price was blood. 
The price was blood. The cost was blood so that all men who would believe might know that the relationship to God was going to cost the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice. We did not get saved on a whim. There was a massive cost to it. And all of that points to Christ who is the sacrifice. And so when the priest in ancient days stood in all of the shed blood on the Passover time, the celebration of the Passover, when he stood there at times the blood of thousands upon thousands of sheep rolling down the backside of the temple. It was a way of reminding all the people the cost of God's reconciliation with man. It was a massive cost. That cost of the life of something that had blood pulsating through its veins. Life was in the blood and that life was taken. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. Without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So a covenant with God always demanded not just a death, not just a death of something, but death through the shedding of blood because life of the flesh is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples here in verse 24, when you take this cup, When you take this drink, it's not any more to remind you of the blood of the lamb that you put on your doorpost. It's not to remind you of that. That was the old. It's no longer to remind you of that time. Now it is a reminder that I poured out my blood for you. Now it's a reminder of me. Now it's a reminder of the once forever sacrifice. Now it's a reminder of the one who could remove the penalty of sin forever. See, the words that Jesus says, I poured out my blood for many, say everything. It's a graphic demonstration. For us to see that the life of Christ was being poured out for many. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad of that. I'm so glad of that. Notice it's not for all. It's for many. It's for many. All who believe. Poured out for the elect, both Jew and Gentile. Jesus Christ, in this very moment, perpetually symbolizes the clarification of the new covenant with his own. He's clarifying exactly who he is. And all who believe have forgiveness of sins because of his blood being poured out because of his sacrifice because of his death without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and so not only is there comfort but there's hope isn't there there's hope John says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness well what hope do we have of that happening if Christ never died 
What hope do we have of that happening if His blood was never shed, if He never poured out His life? We have no hope. But because Jesus offered His body as a substitutionary sacrifice, we have comfort. And because His blood was shed, we have hope. So what does all that mean? What does all of it mean? Verse 25, Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is giving assurance. We have comfort. We have hope. Now this is assurance. This is a reality of a second coming. And it sets up when Jesus comes and sets up the millennial kingdom. The kingdom in which he rules. Which he brings Israel back. The great event that he's talking about. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. He's telling them that yes he's going to die. But he's telling them he's going to pour out his blood for them. Yes, all of that is true. But listen, that kind of devastating news doesn't have to last in their minds because Jesus brings assurance to the disciples' hearts and says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do this with you in my kingdom. Yeah, I'm giving my body. Yes, I'm going to die. But I'm coming back. So you know right there between verse 24 and 25 in that little white space, right in there is the resurrection. Right there is the resurrection. Because Jesus can't come back unless he's alive. And so right there without saying it, he's saying it. And I will rise from the dead. No need to worry. Don't worry about it. I'll be back. I'll never drink of the vine until I do it with you personally. Oh, what a promise. What a promise. It's an assuring promise. You know why? Because God cannot lie. This is God incarnate going to the cross, going to rise from the dead, saying, I'm not going to do this again until I do it with you in the kingdom. God cannot lie. What he says must happen, and it will happen. So for him not to do it is a denial of his very nature. And God cannot change. All of these little phrases that you hear, all of these little phrases that you read in the scriptures about God, all go together. This has to be true because this is who God is. God cannot lie. God cannot change. Therefore, this is an absolute promise. So when Jesus says, I say to you, I shall never again drink of that fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It's an absolute promise. We say oftentimes, never, always, you never, you always. Those superlatives we use often, and we should not, because we can't fulfill that. But God can. And so Jesus can use them clearly. Don't worry about it, I'll be back. We can gain great assurance in our hearts because of those words. Great assurance concerning our future salvation. Don't worry. I'll be back. You and I are going to celebrate with Christ. 
if we know him, if we're saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to remember his sacrifice together and maybe, maybe just possibly that's what's going to occupy our entire eternity, just celebrating Christ. What significance, what staggering clarification, what an incredible meaning. Comfort, hope, assurance. It's all here. All here at the First Communion. That's why Jesus came, isn't it? That's why Jesus came. He came so that we would have comfort, hope, assurance. All born in salvation. And he instituted our communion. He instituted the time that we gather and where we come together as a family and as children of his and we gather together and we celebrate our communion. And we see Jesus celebrating that communion the night before he heads to the cross to pour out his blood as a sacrifice for sin. No animal would be enough. Only the blood of Christ alone could do it. And then... I love how he ends it. I love how how they end this moment. Verse 26. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know what that says in the original language? It says this. And hymning, they went out. And hymning. Basically, they were singing. They were singing as they were going. You can tell this wasn't devastating for them. They were singing. They were praising God. We read about it in Psalm 147. It's becoming to praise God. They were praising God as they're going out. I don't know what they were singing. It might have been one of the praise psalms. Psalm 113 to 118. Somewhere in there. Maybe one of the hallelujah psalms. The hallel psalms is what they're called. Maybe it was one of those. We're not sure. But they were going out hymning. They were singing in their heart and singing with their voices as they're heading out to the Mount of Olives. And we know in our study of John what happened there. Jesus is arrested. Hauled back for a false trial so that they might be scattered. Fulfilling yet his words again so that he might die so that we might be saved. Encouraged by his words, they went out singing. <laughs> I love that. I mean, you read this text and you go, oh, this is a dark moment. I mean, Jesus is saying, here I am, I'm giving my body, I'm giving, I mean, this is a very dark moment. No, not so much. Not so much. What joy fills the heart when we know and understand the truth, Right? That's what we see there. Joy that's filling their heart when they know and understand the truth. They're comforted, they have hope, and they know the future. They know it's secure. What assurance. So they go out singing. A bleak moment filled with such joy. That's how we ought to be. That's what our life ought to be. No matter what's going on, whatever seems bleak, if we know Jesus Christ, we have hope. If we know Jesus Christ, we have assurance. God cannot lie. 
The song says, Jesus paid it all. How much to him we owe? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Well, we're going to celebrate communion here in just a moment. We're going to sing. We're going to hymn together in just a moment. Would you bow in a word of prayer? Father, we do thank you for just this moment of time, really, in your word. We thank you for that communion service. That final Passover where you sacrificed the final satisfactory lamb. The pure, fully unblemished lamb of God. You didn't have to offer anything. Those who brought the lamb and any other Passover brought it in order to take away their sin. You gave a lamb when you had no sin. And you gave a lamb that surpassed any lamb that was ever brought before. You gave your own son, the lamb of God. And through his death, our sin was taken. Oh Lord, I trust that we would believe it that we would place our faith in you. That it wouldn't be minuscule, small, unsaving, intellectual belief, but a total surrender to you. Knowing that we deserve everything we would get by way of your wrath, have you chose not to save us, and yet by your mercy and grace, you have made us your children. We thank you for that, Lord. Bless our time as we worship you in this communion. Not just the moment, not just the elements, but you and you alone. All to your glory we pray in Jesus' name.